Do you enjoy staying up to date with current literature? Need a convenient way to digest the latest and greatest articles published in Wilderness and Environmental Medicine? Well, welcome to Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live. We've arranged for the primary authors of some of the best articles in our latest issue to walk you through their work and help you to understand what they found. We want you to learn and enjoy doing it. And now, host and media editor for Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live, Dr. Jeremy Jocelyn. So welcome everybody to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live Journal Club. We've got a great journal club planned today. I'm really excited. This is our first teleconference journal club uh, and it's going to be good. We've got one, two, three, four, five articles that we're going to be discussing today. These articles are from the March 2016 issue of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. We've got some great authors lined up, some good reviewers, great reviewers, and we've even got participants in the audience. So we're going to get right to it. We're going to jump into our first article here. Uh, this first article is uh, the six-minute walk test as a predictor of summit success on Denali. First author is Catherine Shea, and it's going to be presented today by co-author Patrick Bagley. And it's going to be reviewed by Amy Biondich. So Patrick and Amy, uh, you guys are on. And, uh, you know, just to, by way of introduction here, when I read this article, I was, I was glad that this article was published, uh, despite uh, having some negative results. And I've seen this concept of a six-minute walk test discussed in various applications. I'm curious, though, what was the purpose of this research in this particular setting? And do your results imply that other six-minute walk tests may also be weak predictors of success? So, uh, Patrick, why don't you give us a brief summary of the article and then try to weave answers to these questions uh, into your summary, if you don't mind. Sure. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah. I guess it's tricky when everyone's mute. Um, can anybody respond to that question? No, just me. Okay, well, if you can hear me, we'll go with that. Um, as you guys know, my name is Patrick Bagley. I'm a third-year medical student. I'll be presenting the six-minute walk test as a predictor of summit success on Denali, and I'm presenting on behalf of Dr. Catherine Shea, the principal investigator. A little background, Denali is the tallest mountain in North America at 20,000 feet. The six-minute walk test is a well-known test for measuring the burden of diseases such as COPD, cystic fibrosis, and congestive heart failure. This test was applied in a wilderness environment in 2010 um, on Aconcagua, the tallest mountain in South America. And researchers there found that having somebody walk as hard as they can for six minutes at 14,000 feet of elevation and then immediately measuring their vital signs showed that individuals satting at less than 75% on pulse oximetry found that there's a 97% sensitivity that that individual failed to reach the summit. So we thought that was a very robust test, and we sought to apply that to Denali, the tallest mountain in North America. We generally replicated that study on Aconcagua, and our initial analysis of the data showed that it wasn't so much the vital signs, but the distance the individual was able to cover in six minutes. And um, that was on univariate analysis. On multivariate analysis, we found no significant differences, and our overarching conclusion was such that the six-minute walk test with post-exercise vital signs and distance covered is not a predictor of summit success. We realized that um, these research uh, endeavors in a wilderness environment 
uh, are, have a lot of confounding variables, mainly weather. We had record-breaking heat on Denali that year. There's a referral bias in such that individuals at 14,000 feet who are feeling very poorly would not want to participate in our research, and that pulse oximetry may be inaccurate below saturations of 80%, and it was routine to saturate at about 75% for individuals. So I hope that's a satisfactory summary, and I'm happy to field any questions that I can. Thank you. Great. Amy, do you have some questions? Yeah, so I agree with you, Jeremy. I thought it was a really um, interesting study. I thought, you know, the whole idea of using the six-minute walk test as a predictor was um, pretty interesting. Um, I guess one of my biggest questions, because the study was trying to replicate the earlier um, study that was done um, that um, he had just talked about, I mean, do you, you know, what, why do you think that the, the different results were seen? You know, in the other study by Lazio at all, you know, they did show that they thought that it was predictive. Do you have any, you know, guesses to why you guys did get a different result? You know, do you think it was because of the, you know, different mountain, different location? I mean, did you guys kind of talk about that when you're writing the paper up? We talked about that uh, pretty extensively. Um, it's my understanding that 14,000 feet at Aconcagua is really a much different environment than 14,000 feet on Denali. It's my understanding that that's more of a base camp based in sort of a dirt earthen environment that's much more, I don't know, hospitable, if you'll put it, whereas 14,000 feet on Denali was really in the thick of things. We were on a glacier. Our six-minute walk track was, you know, in snow. So right off the bat, that's different. And we were also wondering if there's a sort of a functional altitude at play, because Denali is at a greater latitude from the equator, that we were wondering if, you know, the air at 14,000 feet on Denali is not exactly equivalent to the air at 14,000 feet at Aconcagua. We're not atmospheric scientists, so who knows about that. Um, but yeah, we too were surprised at the differences in results. Was it surprising to see that, you know, maybe the, the distance that was walked over that amount of time might actually be more predictive than the SBO2? Or was that something you guys were thinking that, you know, might also come into play? I was certainly surprised by that. Um, you know, to be fair, I'm not a statistician. We kind of measured as many variables as we could and then um, provided that to people much smarter than myself uh, at Stanford to sort of crunch some numbers. And that's what they came up with. Um, Distances certainly would be, it would be phenomenal if that was the case because that would mean that you could have less diagnostic equipment and just measure distance, you know, say with your climbing rope and wands. Um, so it was surprising. It would be great if, if it held true with both univariate and multivariate analysis, but because it only was true with univariate, I am sort of limiting how much I put stock in it. No, definitely. I just, I thought that was kind of an interesting outcome. Um, and I guess the other point that I wanted to bring up is it was something that you kind of already mentioned, you know, the fact that there obviously are a lot of other variables um, in terms of being able to summon a mountain, weather being one of them. And I noticed in the paper that, you know, you guys did know that there wasn't quite enough power to discuss, you know, the external factors influencing summit success. Um, but just with your experience with the data, I mean, were you able to, you know, did you see any trends or have anything kind of to add to that? I mean, it's obviously so many variables to control for in a study like this. Did that kind of, but, you know, did anything kind of pan out from that? You know, um, 
the short answer is the only thing that really panned out was that, you know, we had non-conclusive data. And uh, I should put it as a side, I think it is remarkable to have a negative study published, which I think in this case is pretty, pretty cool. Um, but in our crunching of the numbers, uh, it's really hard to control for variables, and especially on a mountain like Denali where things can change so fast. Um, I think it's worth doing these studies. I think uh, if someone were to replicate the data, they would, you know, it would be a great idea. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of way more than I understand on how to control for in a statistical model for vast number of variables. Patrick, I have a question okay. for you. Um, just, you know, you mentioned uh, the record-breaking heat and the limitations of the paper. It mentions an electrical storm. Um, you know, different, mm. it's a different location uh, than the, the previous data that you compared it to. Uh, what's your sense if, if this study was done again, uh, maybe a, a different location that didn't have a storm, that didn't have uh, record-breaking heat, do you think that your results would be different and that they would be uh, more in line with, with previous work? Uh, or do you think that this uh, six-minute walk test uh, needs a little bit more work? Sure. Um, you know, I think if we, the original research from 2010 from Aconcagua was so robust that it would be wonderful if we could play stock in it in the ways that they suggest. So I think to have the clearest um, idea would be to replicate the study on Aconcagua, you know, same mountain, um, same study. I think it's really comparing apples to oranges using the two different mountains. So I think that would be the most, you know, reasonable uh, way to proceed to really try to determine uh, the best use of the six-minute walk test. Sure. And um, um, we're going to move right along here. I want to just see if anybody in the audience has a, has a question. Uh, anybody out there have any questions? Yeah. This is Marty Hoffman. I, I'd like to ask Patrick a question. Sure, go ahead, please. Uh, first off, I'd like to, like to just say it's always nice to have exercise-related studies published in the journal. Uh, but my question is, I, I wonder how the author group decided to use a walking test as a functional capacity test since someone reasonably fit would actually be able to run at, at these altitudes, even even on packed snow. And so it seems to me that you're not really fully assessing functional capacity. Yeah, that came up a lot. And it was actually my job in a way. I felt like a lifeguard yelling at people, no running on the pool deck to make sure that they were walking in an attempt to control for variables. Um, but I can tell you that a six-minute walk at um, – maximum effort really was a difficult test and we had some very fit individuals uh, really close to their limits. It was almost like watching a track meet. So I think that walking is robust enough. You know, it's, it's hard to call the difference between a regular walk and a power walk and, you know, making sure one foot's on the ground. You know, it, it does get into a little uh, semantic points there, but um, in terms of assessing their functional capacity, I can tell you that pretty much every individual that did do the walk was very tired afterwards. I hope that answers your question. I'd be happy to follow up any, any other questions. Uh, well, why don't we leave it there for now? Um, I appreciate uh, the, the question, Marty. Um, we'll be back in just one minute uh, with Dr. Paterini to discuss his work. Uh, but first, let's find out what's going on in Wilderness Medicine News. 
To begin with, the World Congress of Wilderness Medicine will be held in Telluride, Colorado, July 31st through August 4th. This is a joint conference with the International Society of Mountain Medicine. Registration is now open, and you can look at our show notes for the link for registration. They are also currently accepting research abstracts for presentation at the conference, as well as nominations for our yearly awards to be presented at the conference. You can find the link for submitting your abstract, as well as a description of the awards and previous winners in our show notes. Please submit all of your nominations to the J. Lemery by April 25, 2016. If anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback, or is interested in participating in our WEM Live, please send an email to wemlive at wms.org. All right, so up next uh, we have uh, the article, Primary Care in Extreme Environments, Medical Clinic Utilization at Antarctic Stations, 2013 to 2014. This is going to be presented by the first author, James Paterini, and reviewed by Becky Blue. So, uh, James, I really like this article. Um, I think it gives the average wilderness medicine provider some knowledge of the medical infrastructure on Antarctica, uh, and I think that's important base knowledge to have. Can you tell us more about the medical clinic utilization in Antarctica and what we can learn from how things work there? Uh, James, go ahead and, and give us some information about your article. I'll just give you a, a little bit of background and then if, uh, if I'm running too long, please cut me off. This was a, this was a fun thing to work on. Um, when uh, the University of Texas Medical Branch took over uh, the uh, National Science Foundation's Antarctic Support Contract back in 2012 uh, for the three main U.S. Antarctic stations plus uh, the medical screening for those who were going out to our field camps. Uh, one of the goals when we took over in 2012 was to modernize and standardize the clinic data reporting because there had been no real standard way to do that previously uh, with the hope of eventually being able to use this data to drive improvements in how we employ medical screening for those who are going down there uh, both in the summer and the winter because we do that very differently. Um, and how we allocate our medical resources and personnel. And then eventually the hope would be that we could um, hopefully use this data to have an impact on uh, the number and uh, severity of emergency medical evacuations that our Air Force National Guard folks are having to perform every year down there. Um, from a purely academic point of view, these two stations are also, they're just really, really attractive to compare and contrast because despite all being on the same continent, we tend to Think of Antarctica as this uniform thing, but they really could not be more different from one another. Um, McMurdo Station is basically a small village, very decentralized, separate buildings. Folks are walking outside uh, every day between uh, their place of work and their lodging and where they eat. Um, Emmons and Scott uh, Station at the South Pole uh, is almost the opposite. It's sitting at a density altitude around 3,000 meters on average. Um, it's entirely self-contained. Um, and so people very rarely go outside unless they absolutely have to, which is great because average temperatures down there are about minus 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, Palmer Station is actually north of the Antarctic Circle, and it's got open year-round access to water. Um, and temperatures barely get below freezing if you look at the averages. Uh, so these big differences, and then when you look at the population differences that we uh, mentioned in the paper, um, make these three places just really attractive to, to try to compare and contrast. So when we set out to do that and to look specifically at clinic utilization rates between these three stations and then, and then break it down by season um, for the data that we did have and since only holding the contract since 2012, the only robust data we had 
spanned March of 2013 to February 2014. Um, all there's no EMR, unfortunately, and all patient charts are still handwritten. Um, what each station does have is two different sources of longitudinal data collection. What they've got first and foremost, and of the most use to us, is the clinic logs. Um, these are maintained by the providers, um, and, and I thought we did a decent job to give you at least a snapshot of that in the paper of, of um, what small number of medical providers are tasked with taking care of these populations. Sure. Um, and ideally, those clinic logs are supposed to capture every single patient encounter um, by all providers. Uh, the other source of these uh, weekly generated uh, SITREP reports um, that are sent uh, back to the Center for, Center for Polar Medical Ops. Um, ideally, these numbers should all uh, jive with each other. And of course, anytime you're duplicating data entry, uh, some discrepancies crop up. And so that's one of the sources of uh, limitation in this. And it's certainly a, a good suggestions for ways we can improve data collection going forward. Um, the thing with the clinic, and because most of the numbers we talk about come from the clinic logs, I'll say um, the diagnostic categories uh, that are available to providers um, to select from, uh, you can see that all there's 19 of them. Those are shown on the x-axis of figure one. Um, and, uh, and when I get into the numbers, we'll talk about those a little more. Yeah. Um, uh, Becky has a few questions uh, that I think will help, uh, help us discuss this article a little bit. Becky? Yeah, uh, Dr. Bonatarini, first of all, great job. This is a really interesting article. I think we that work in the osteo environment medical field are always very interested in learning about what practitioners are seeing in places like Antarctica. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the, the remote of remote, you know, and, and of course, similar, you know, osteo environments, um, certainly what kind of clinical utilization or medical concerns are actually presenting in populations such as this. Um, the, the first thing I really wanted to ask you is, you know, if you started today and knew that in a couple of years you would do this study all over again, what would you change about the way that patients and data are managed now? How would you go about setting this up such that it would be more useful or, or you know, easier to manage the data in the long run? It's a great question and something I think about frequently. Um, we've already suggested actually some changes and expansions to the, the diagnostic categories that I just mentioned, the 19 different kind of buckets that providers were um, not really free to choose. They were provided with those as part of the clinic logs. And so um, they're limited by those. Uh, so we suggest some changes and expansions to those categories uh, that are made available. Um, so we're not lumping quite so much of our data together in these catch-all buckets. I think uh, specifically neurological complaints is probably the biggest offender um, along with altitude related, uh, which we go into some detail in the paper um, trying to tease apart uh, also, I'd say I think the discrepancies between the sit rep reporting and the clinic logs um, it's expected largely due to the amount of duplication of effort that's there trying to capture uh, everyone who comes to the door. I think an EMR uh, would solve a ton of these issues and be queryable um, and be something that uh, looking ahead would just be a resource we've never had on the continent um, to be able to really mine some serious data. Uh, lastly, I would say we just need more. I mean, a single year of data um, can tell us a bit about clinic utilization, but we haven't spent, you know, hardly any time in this paper. We barely touch on medevacs, um, which are huge use of resources. And they, you know, every time there's an emergency medical evacuation, we're placing the flight crews at risk who are scrambling those resources. Um, and because the end is so small with a single year's worth of data, it's really impossible to draw 
any conclusions specifically about those medical evacuations to help us decide is there something we can change in our screening? Is there something um, that we can do on the front end to, to maybe keep from putting those people in harm's way? So I think getting, if it's possible to go back and get good retrospective data on the medevacs that have occurred uh, prior to 2012, um, that's worth doing, uh, but definitely going forward, that, that should be a priority. Yeah, and I think I think you raise a few, you know, kind of good points and you kind of talk about what would be, you know, very useful to have such as the EMR, but I think it's worth mentioning that in some of these environments and, you know, Antarctica, like I said, is kind of the extreme of the extreme, but certainly any of us who have worked out in the field know that it's hard to keep records, but I think, you know, sure. spending just a minute to think about it before you, you know, take off on an expedition like this about how you're going to manage this and how you are going to collect data for publication or otherwise, I think it's useful to think about ahead of time. Um, another question I had was, you know, you've presented, as you mentioned, three very different locations. You talk about McMurdo and Palmer Island and then the South Pole, of course, and all of which, of course, have the similarity of being Antarctic. But as you mentioned, they're all very, very different from one another. How do you think that the altered populations, which, of course, are different by the environmental stressors, the population and community considerations, and even the medical staffing, how do you think that limits your ability to draw conclusions? It's tough. I would say... Um the, pro probably the lack of demographic data specifically is the, is the largest uh, thing holding us back in terms of being able to say truly we're comparing apples to apples. Um, the fact that they are such different environments we love, and that's, and that's a great thing because it, it'd be wonderful to be able to definitively pin things down to purely environmental causes. Uh, what we can say is we know that everyone who's um, sent to each of these stations is subjected to the exactly the same um, physiological screening. Uh, so we know that all the hoops that we've uh, medically made people jump through to be assigned to McMurdo is exactly what they have to go through to get to uh, assigned to the South Pole, as long as we're talking about summer uh, deployment. Uh, the big kind of hell to get over is um, it's a m just much more stringent uh, medical screening process for sending folks down who are going to winter over just because it is so much more difficult to extract people in an emergency situation if we have to. Um, so if we were able to get demographic data and then look back and say, okay, are people self-selecting? Are there duties um, inherent to uh, the type of research that's going on and the type of um, work positions that are available at, say, Palmer Station that are attracting, you know, one set of patients that's you know fundamentally different, even though they're going through the same screening processes, are people self-selecting into these locations um, that are resulting in very different populations that we haven't captured here? That's absolutely possible, and that's something that uh, um, it would be definitely valuable to try to control for if it's within our means going forward. Yeah, I think it would also be very valuable to us that work in this field to really kind of see what criteria you are using to screen, and so what your baseline population may look like. I think that might help. Can I ask one more question? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, Dr. Henry, the last question that I, I really had um, that I really kind of found very interesting to my own practice in austere environments is this, this issue you brought up of the somatization of the, of the psychological presentations and the fact that you had this kind of gut feeling that a lot of these complaints of the vague abdominal pains, for example, or, or these other kind of nonspecific clinical presentations um, actually, rather than being physiological in origin, may be a psychological ideology. So, I, you know, I'm curious if you think there's any better way to weed that out or a better way of 
you know, kind of tracking these psychological challenges, because it's certainly something that weighs heavily on the mind of any practitioner in an environment like this. Absolutely. And especially when you look at how limited uh, the medical staffing is down there, if you're the lone provider, the one MD at Palmer Station, and you know that you're going to be faced with, you know, some percent of the folks coming in who may or may not be presenting with true physiological complaints versus, you know, the effects of being in an isolated environment uh, for six months at a time. Um, yeah, I think forewarned is forearmed, number one. And then I think um, seeing what tools we can provide um, that we're not currently doing. So as I mentioned, the difference between the screening, some of the screening that goes on for winter deployments versus summer. So to go down for summer, there's no psychological uh, screening requirements currently. Um, however, everyone has to go through a pretty um, lengthy, I'll say, um, psych screen if they're going to winter over at any of these locations. Um, what I'd be interested in seeing as we get more data going forward is, are we really cutting down, let's put it this way, there's a balance between while there's greater isolation during the winter months, right, because populations are lower, Palmer generally stays constant, but um, as folks are more isolated during the winter, at the same time, that population that's there has been subjected to much further screening. And so if we are, um, if our psychological screening that exists now for the winter folks is doing what we hope it's doing, um, might it be worth employing that for the summer folks as well? And if that's the case, then uh, expansion of that screening or some additional training for the medical provider that is going to be there um, specifically to, to put this in the back of their minds for the first time, um, you know, until we started pulling the data, this wasn't something that um, specifically for Antarctic stations I had seen really talked about in the literature. And so putting it out there so that it is, if you are signing up to be a medical provider down there, it's something that you're going to be thinking about, I think is the first step. And then seeing what tools we can give them. I think given the limited staffing, I think having a dedicated um, a psychiatrist down there is probably not realistic, but at the same time, um, giving the emergency medical providers, uh, the internists that are going down, um, the tools that they need uh, to be able to pick these up, uh, I think is hopefully what's going to come out of this and further research like this. Wow. Yeah, um, fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. That, was a good, that was a good question. I, I'm glad that we, that we stayed on for that one. Um, that is a, a, a very good question. Uh, something that I was pondering as well, um, and, and thanks for addressing it. Well, let's uh, move on then, um, and we're going to talk uh, next with uh, Chris Davis and uh, Matthew Scholl, and uh, I'll put them on real quick. We're going to talk about a new proposal for management of severe frostbite in the austere environment. Uh, the first author, uh, Emmanuel Couchy, and uh, this is going to be presented by Chris Davis and, again, reviewed by Matthew Scholl. Um, I read this paper. I thought it was a good deep dive into what is a real bread and butter topic in wilderness medicine. Just was the last night or the night before on one of my shifts, I saw a case of frostbite here in Syracuse, New York, uh, where it was a negative 16-degree Fahrenheit day, uh, pretty cold. Um, and so uh, I, was, I was very interested in reading this. Chris, tell us more about your paper uh, and the idea of using TPA remotely for severe limb-threatening frostbite. Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about the paper. Um, I mean, the basic gist was we wanted to highlight some of the logistical limitations for treatment of uh, 
frostbite in the austere environment. And we've got some pretty good and robust data on you know, the efficacy of PPA and these um, prostacyclin analogs. Some of this data is from the U.S., some from Europe. Um, but given sort of the evacuation constraints, you know, victims are often um, outside of the treatment window for these for these modalities. So the question and the, and the rationale for the paper was, could we develop a rational treatment strategy to optimize care for these victims? So um, in just a bit of background, um, Manu Koshi is really truly the, the expert and um, he helps run a, um, a frostbite treatment center out of Chamonix. And that's, um, it, it was very fun to collaborate and hear how they do things over in France. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at there. Great. Uh, Matt, do you have some questions and some discussion points for this paper? Oh, absolutely. Thank you, uh, Jeremy and Chris. Thank you very much for this paper. I, I, too, found this really interesting and really fascinating, the idea of pushing some of our recently accepted hospital-based practices into the far-forward environment. It's really, really interesting mm -hmm. to me. And as I, as I was thinking about this, Chris, you know, I, I was driving uh, home from work today, and I heard an article in NPR about the downside of utilization of PPIs, or what, what used to be such a trusted therapy, and now we're discover, discovering once again that no therapy necessarily is risk-free. I was just thinking to myself about this paper and about transmuting the practice that we've accepted in hospitals into the, into the wilderness-based environment or the austere environment. And I was thinking to myself about re reviewing some of the um, some of the benefits, some of the risks, some of the contraindications. I wanted to start off by asking just a quick quick review of the benefits of the therapy and what we know about not using therapy. This therapy, i.e., what's the baseline rate of of amputation and uh, severe frostbite, and then what are the what are the, what do we know about bleeding complications in this therapy, and how how does that affect our our consideration in a far forward environment? Yeah, that's um, that, that's a, a huge a huge question and a, and a lot of nuances there. And, and let me see if I can capture some of those um, some of the points. So, I mean, so one would be we we know the the baseline risk of complications for for major bleeding for TPA specifically is about one percent, and and that's taken from um, administration of TPA and stroke mimics, and then administration of TPA and and in our actual stroke victims too, and also those for um, MI. So we have a, a reasonable sense of that number. Um, and then in terms of judging um, um, whether or not it can really affect outcomes for these uh, frostbite victims, well, one, it, it's important to keep in mind that these injuries are you know, potentially catastrophic for, for these victims, right? They're usually young and healthy, have a whole lot of working years left. And if they lose their, their hands, um, then they probably they've lost their livelihood. So that's that's a big deal. Um, and then in terms of you know whether or not it works, well, a lot of that is based on. I mean, we have to have an accurate sense of what the severity of the injury is, and that's that's really why we couched this recommendation in that TPA really should only be used in those most severe of cases where where the frostbite is extending to proximal to that that MCP joint. Um, otherwise, we just in our minds, when we don't have this robust data about this, couldn't justify the risk. So I hope I began to answer some of your questions there. No, no, that, that was very good. Thank you very much. Um, another question that, I, that came up as I was reading the paper, you list in um, your protocol for IVTPA some of the precautions, and specifically one of the precautions is listed as high-altitude HAPE or HACE. And I just wanted to, to delve into that a bit further with you and, and ask if this is high altitude in general, and if so, what altitude, or is it the presence of 
symptoms consistent with haze, paper haze, and what's some of the decision making that comes with with those conditions and the and the application of this therapy? Yeah, we wanted to again, we're, we've got this high risk therapy that has the potential to um, really to, to help people. So, I mean, the, the big deal and. I want to highlight a few here, a few theoretical considerations. So for HACE, the the big the intuitive issue is I mean, these people are confused and you can't really necessarily re-examine them, right? So if we give TPA to these people, they're confused or, and or obtunded, then we have no way clinically to get a sense of whether or not um, they're potentially having a, an intracranial bleed. So that, that's, the, um, that's the deal there. Um, HACE, that's uh, that's sort of less of a concern, but I do want to highlight sort of the, the theoretical concerns, the two other issues that we just don't know anything about, and that would be you know, there's a, a reasonable pre- uh, prevalence of high-altitude retinal hemorrhages. We just don't know if TPA in this population is going to have any effect. And then um, Peter Hackett, who is another of the co-authors, um, had some an interesting thought about uh, there, there's a pretty high prevalence of um, basically uh, gastritis um, and even bleeding erosions um, in individuals who acutely go up to high altitude, and who knows? Again, we, we highlighted two cases where we didn't two cases where we didn't see um, complications, but um, obviously this population uh, is going to be very different from uh, the population of, of people in hospital who have maybe a stroke mimic. So um, we just don't know. Matt, did you have anything further to ask? I don't think so, no. Thank you very much, Chris. Again, I thought this was a really fascinating article. Yeah, I'm looking at Henry yeah. here, and uh, you know, for the, the listeners out there, you, you got to get your hands on this. Um, I, I think it's, it's good to look at the paper. There's a, a, a protocol that's given, um, and, uh, and some of these considerations are mentioned as well. Um, well, then we're going to go to uh, Sam and Jay next uh, to talk about this uh, next paper. Portable pre-hospital method to treat near hypothermic shivering cold casualties. First author is Samuel Oliver, uh, who we have here and is going to be uh, presenting. Uh, and then we have uh, Sanjay Gupta, who's going to be reviewing it. Sam, if you don't mind, uh, walk us through a little bit about uh, your trial um, that you uh, compared uh, some of the various methods of, of warming or, or of, uh, of wrapping uh, hypothermic subjects. Um, the conclusions are interesting, and this, uh, you know, that and I guess you can tell us better. But it seems that your conclusion was that warm beverages probably don't have the effect that, that we think that they have on rewarming hypothermic patients. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about your trial and, and these conclusions. Sure, thank you. So, in this article, we um, examined methods that could be used for protecting cold casualties. And the importance of these methods were that they could be um, used in a wilderness environment and, and would be portable. So they were, we, we limited down the methods we looked at to um, a polyethylene survival bag, which is a, like a, a thick plastic, which is a very typical um, survival bag used, um, a, a multi-layered uh, made of metallicized plastic sheeting uh, uh, produced by Blizzard survival, um, survival bag. And then we were also interested in methods to to provide um, additional heat to see if that had any additional advantages. So we were interested in um, the chemical heat pads that are also part of the metallicized plastic sheeting setup, which um, I believe the American Army uses the uh, 
also and um, also these warm this idea that warm drinks may be beneficial for um, cold casualties and with our volunteers to recreate the scenario that people might come across in a in a cold environment we we um, submerge these volunteers in 13 degree water so it's degree Celsius uh, until they reached a mild hypothermia, 36 degrees uh, Celsius, about 97 Fahrenheit. And then we um, each, they repeated this uh, on four occasions to do each of the um, cold protection methods um, in a repeated measure design. And then we exposed them to a cold environment for um, three hours um, to simulate the cold environment that they might have to wait um, for a rescue. And the sort of summary of it was that the cold casualties were re were rewarmed um, with less peripheral cold stress and, and shivering when they used the multi-layered survival bags than the polyethylene survival bag. And the, the chemical heat pads added to this uh, rewarming, but as you suggested in the introduction, that the hot drinks didn't seem to have any additional benefit um, in rewarming. Excellent. Um... Jay, I think you have a couple of questions prepared and um, help us unpack this a little bit. Yeah, uh, Sam, thank you for uh, publishing this uh, important work. This is uh, always very interesting as we're uh, always worried about people um, or patients, you know, being stuck out in cold environments, the unintended night out, um, trauma, et cetera. So I think, um, you know, kind of evaluating different methods of, of not only maintenance of um, body heat, but actually, um, improvement of uh of core temperature is always really important and um you know i always kind of like the uh the uh, myth busting in medicine so i, I thought it was uh, really valuable that you evaluated um you know warmed uh, fluids as a means for increasing uh core temperatures you know so kind of in reviewing the paper and thinking about um uh, in particular the uh, the warm fluids I, I just a couple of questions came to mind um, you know, and I did a little bit of research. So it, it looked like in, in the paper that the um, participants uh, received this, uh, these warm liquids at zero, one hour, and two hour. What was the uh, approximate uh, duration of time it took for these volumes to be drunk? I mean, did it, they were done 15 minutes and a half an hour over the course of the hour at 70 degrees. I, I'm only asking because just in doing some review of kind of tongue pain tolerances. I guess uh, like the, the tongue apparently has a pain threshold I had no idea of about 47 degrees. And burns can occur with fluids at 65 degrees centigrade um, after about two seconds. So I wonder, did you encounter any instances where you thought maybe um, the, the subjects weren't really imbibing the liquids that quickly? Was there some uh, maybe some possibility for buffering um, with kind of the cold environment of the mouth before the fluids were really ingested where they could have caused some effect internally? Or did you not find that was, was the case or the fluids were ingested in a pretty robust manner? Uh, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, we in some pilot testing, we, um, we suggested that um, with people in cold environments that they were able to ingest um, quite hot um, liquids. Um, and, and we... By measuring the the liquid, we we averaged out about 70 degrees um, Celsius um, for for that liquid. They did drink it over a relatively short period, but they did drink to taste. So it was a maximum of a 20 minute period um, that we allowed them to drink over th this liquid. Um, 
So it is difficult to um, know the, maybe the exact temperature that they were, um, in, were drinking these liquids, but nobody complained of any um, burning or um, you know, mouth soreness or anything like that. So people sort of drank to their, to their tolerance, really. Okay. All right. Interesting. I mean, it's always always a question of if you're always weighing the concept of weight, and you know, if you're going to be carrying a liter of warmed um, of, of warm liquids versus you know that equal amount of chemical hot packs, it might be more valuable to carry the the hot packs for the same weight. All right. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I really liked how in the study you you did the measure of of skin temperature and also of uh, metabolic heat production. And I had been a uh, reading in your paper um, that you did undergo a, uh, you put these subjects through a thermal discomfort measure, I guess, produced by McGinnis. Was there, was there any measurements taking about um, duration of shivering between the, the two parties uh, or the subjects in the different modalities um, or any sort of, I don't know, I don't know if there really is a shivering index, but just, um, you know, comfort with that kind of muscle thermogenesis? Yeah, that's a, that's a really nice question as well. The, the metabolic heat production um, is derived from indirect calorimetry, which is um, based on an um, expired gas analysis. So it doesn't really um, assess individual muscle activity. Um, I'm aware of some work that uses um, EMG, um, where they put uh, uh, electrodes to identify shivering activity of particular muscles and I know that Professor Haman, Francois Haman, um, does this in a number of his studies that he's published um, to look at metabolic activity of particular uh, muscles. So it's certainly possible, but we didn't look at the individual shivering of, of individual muscles within this. We were more interested to try to understand um, what the impact on total energy expenditure was in each of these modalities to see if um, shivering and, and the energy cost of the, the the cold stress was different between the di between the different methods. Understood. Yeah. Uh, again, I think uh, I think this paper is is highly valuable, and I like how you put the uh, the weights of, of many things. So if we're talking about a very minimal difference in weight between a uh, you know three mil plastic bag and this uh, multi layered metal and um, plastic. Um, kind of uh, rescue bag. I think I will uh, change out my three mil plastic bag for the rescue bag, uh, according to what you have listed here. So uh, thank you very much for, for allowing us to review um, this paper and uh, thank you for publishing it. Yeah, thank you, Sanjay. I, I have a, a question myself, um, just as I was reading this. Um, so I, I understand, uh, Sam, that uh, you did mention in your limitations, um, this phenomenon of, of rectal temperatures lagging behind true core temperatures. Um, I was wondering just for the audience if you would just uh, mention uh, why you felt that uh, this was adequate uh, for this study. Um, and then, you know, do you think your results would be different if you repeated them, um, uh, given that uh, the, the temperature might, might have some lag to it? Yeah, so, yeah the, the, we uh, assessed core temperature in this study using a rectal thermistor, which there are a number of, number of studies, um, in particular using exercise as a as a, a stressor showing differences um, in core temperature measurement depending on how you measure them. So you can use esophageal uh, temperature probes or you could use a, 
um, a tele tele telemetry-based pill system or um, peripheral temperature sensors under the arm, for example, and, and there is a different response, um, in particularly where you have dynamic changes in, in temperature. In this study, over the three-hour period, although core temperature did rise um, back to within sort of normal levels, the change was quite slow um, in this study. Uh, so it's, it's unlikely that the, there would be a, a large difference between maybe esophageal prose, which some people would consider as the gold standard um, measure compared with the rectal thermistor. And also really, of course, the, 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 the interest for us is the difference between the interventions. And I, I, I wouldn't hypothesize that we would see different findings um, if we'd used esophageal uh, probe, for example, in this particular study between the interventions, and of course that's the important um, sure. characteristic. If we use a telemetry pill, of course, potentially with different um, uh, beverage temperatures, we may have seen some differences and some artifacts based on putting in different cold or hot solutions into the stomach, depending on where that telemetry pill is. That's always a particular limitation of that method of assessing core temperature. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I actually have one question from an audience member, Daryl. Um, he wanted to know, and, and I was just looking through the results as well to see if I could find this. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, if, if the subjects who drank warm liquid, and I don't see the answer here, uh, the subjects who drank warm liquid, was there any uh, comfort measure increased uh, or, or, or said differently that, that measure of comfort that you used uh, did that value go up with the warm liquids? I know that their temperature statistically didn't, but but uh, mm. perhaps that that warm fluid would increase the sense of well-being, um, which uh, we know does have some some value in these hypothermic uh, types of situations. Yeah, it's a really it's a really uh, nice question. Um, we probably would have hypothesized um, that the warm liquids would have made people feel better. Um, but we didn't actually ask people how they felt. Um, we asked them to rate um, their sensation to cold or thermal comfort, and that's a um, slightly different thing. So we asked them, in effect, how cold do they feel um, in simple terms. And, and in that assessment, they reported no difference between um, the trial where they had the polyethylene survival bag alone and the polyethylene survival bag plus the hot fluids. So there was no difference in our thermal comfort assessment. Um, I think it's probably, uh, it's sorry, it's possible that there was also no difference in how they felt, but I think that that's probably for someone to follow up in a future study, really. Sure. Thank you very much. We're going to go ahead and, and move along to our uh, final paper here. Uh, we have uh, a novel application for cognitive evaluation in mountain ultramarathons, olfactory assessment. Uh, and this paper um, is going to be presented uh, by uh, first author Alessandro Tanachi, and it's going to be reviewed uh, by uh, Gareth uh, DeBegan. Um, you know, this, our final paper here, but uh, certainly not the least. I remember reading this and being quite excited about uh, the possibility of using uh, this method uh, to evaluate cognition, um, if only because it is uh, potentially a, a field expedient method of, of observing and assessing cognition. Um, not that cognition is very important, 
but in the athletes that I've cared for at, at a number of ultra marathons, uh, a cognitive change is a red flag and I think requires further probing and further evaluation. And so um, if, if there was a concern about somebody's cognition and this, and we had a good way to, to screen for it uh, that didn't involve me uh, directly speaking with each and every individual in a large race, uh, that would be pretty valuable to me. And so uh, I read this paper with some interest. I realized that it's uh, pretty preliminary um, and there's certainly some limitations to it, but uh, I'm happy to discuss it. And I'm very glad that uh, we have Alessandro here uh, to describe uh, the trial and, and tell us all about it. Uh, go ahead, Alessandro. Wait a minute. This isn't Alessandro and Gareth. Nope. It's me, your host, Jeremy Joslin. As you would imagine, with our first ever episode, we ran into some technical difficulties. And unfortunately, we won't have Alessandro and Gareth uh, here to give a review of this article. But what we did do is had a little bit of back and forth between them. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and summarize some of that conversation for you. So right off the bat, let me just tell you about the article. Uh, so this article was primarily about olfactory processing. And Alessandro uh, discusses in his summary that this is one of the five human senses, probably considered one of the least important ones, at least historically. Uh, but now there's an increasing amount of clinical and scientific uh, insights into this olfactory processing and its relationship to cognitive functioning. So uh, traditional cognitive testing relies on long and structured methods, which are not particularly suitable for austere environments like this mountain ultramarathon race. Mountain ultramarathon athletes can experience cognitive decay, mainly due to hypoxia and sleep deprivation, so they set out to employ olfactory testing as a non-invasive, quick and easy test to be administered in athletes undergoing a mountain ultramarathon. And this was performed uh, at the very long, 332.5-kilometer-long ultramarathon in the Italian Alps. They conducted three test sessions before the race, at mid-race, and just after the race in the athletes, and they compared these three sessions to evaluate the acute effect of the race on the athlete's olfaction. Then they compared baseline results of the athletes with a group of non-mountain ultramarathon athletes and a cohort of sedentary controls. They found a decrease of olfaction throughout the race, slightly correlated with total body weight and sleep deprivation during the second half of the race, while long-term effects didn't seem to be present when they compared these athletes with the two control groups. The work demonstrated the possible effects of strenuous mountain ultramarathons on olfaction as a cognitive marker of athletes, proving the effectiveness of this approach in the austere setting. So that was the summary that Dr. Alessandro gave us. And what I want to do is try to summarize some of the questions and the answers uh, and the back and forth between Gareth and Alessandro. So Gareth uh, mentions that this is a fascinating concept and a test he's not very familiar with. He doesn't think many listeners would be as well. He said it, it seemed like a pretty simple test, but he wondered about the logistics of performing the test. So how long did the test take to perform and how it might compare to other cognitive tests that have been used in the past. Gareth mentions the Stroop test or the 10-minute testing performed by Hirdyal et al. Uh, and these are cited in the references uh, as well as in our show notes. Alessandro said the test is quite simple and varied to administer. He said it takes about eight minutes to administer, uh, and it was well-suited for this austere environment. He said that the setting that they used, this, this mountain ultramarathon, was a pretty challenging setting, 
uh, that he thought would, would be challenging for any test. And uh, he said that there has been some evidence uh, described where olfactory identification was associated with cognitive functions, including those that were assessed through the Stroop test in this other uh, testing the, by Hurdell, etc. He goes on to mention that the Hurdell uh, testing is very specific for sleep deprivation, and then he goes on to describe some of those uh, methodologies. And we'll go ahead and link to some of these uh, uh, little bits and pieces uh, in the show notes if you want to dig a little bit deeper and get into the weeds with some of this. Gareth asks, what was the environment at the testing site, and, and would these factors of temperature and altitude affect the test? He, he thought there might be some, some problem the colder that you get or the higher you get, the more that it would affect test results. Um, and then he asks if uh, all the testing was done at one location and some other, some other questions about where the tests were performed. Alessandro uh, answers back that uh, he did discuss some of this uh, in the paper um, with regards to the environmental conditions and locations. And uh, he thought that the environmental conditions were pretty similar uh, between the testing sessions and that the testing sessions were done indoors at the same temperature and so uh, he didn't believe that that would have affected his results in this. Next, uh, Gareth asks, um, you found an association between olfactory performance and total body weight at T1, but not at T2. This seems counterintuitive. He said he would have expected a steady progressive change over time and wondered if, if this might be because uh, of a small sample size, which is common in wilderness studies, or maybe if it implied that um, this testing doesn't work. wondered if Alessandro had any insights that he might be able to offer at this. Alessandro uh, responds back that uh, certainly small sample size could be a possible explanation to this phenomenon. He also uh, floats a theory that one reason could be a, a preservation attitude of the human body to the massive efforts experienced in the second part of the race. He also says that, of course, this could be uh, from a small sample size as well. Another question from Gareth about the cost of the sniffing sticks and any logistical hurdles that maybe they didn't expect uh, and were able to overcome. Alessandro says uh, that the sniffing sticks were pretty inexpensive. Total cost for this study was about $200 worth of equipment there. Um, they're good for about a year and a half. Um, definitely a lower test than some other odor identification testing methods that are out there. He mentions the UPSIT method and then said that there really weren't any hurdles to overcome. The test was pretty easy to administer and very well accepted by most of the athletes that they evaluated. Finally, Gareth asks about the Fitbit that was used and any advice for researchers who might intend to use Fitbit in their work. Alessandro says uh, Fitbit worked well. Didn't really have any issues. Uh, as far as advice goes, if you're going to do a research project that lasts greater than four days, uh, you're going to need to probably recharge the device. So just consider um, being able to do that in your study. And then finally, we had a question from an audience member, Mar uh, Marty Hoffman, um, who actually asked the same question that I was thinking, which is, really, what is the evidence for a potential relationship between acute changes in cognitive function and acute changes in olfactory function. And without getting in too deep and reading the response word for word from Alessandro, um, just to summarize, basically Alessandro points out that executive function and cognitive function occurs in the 
frontal and temporal lobes, and that these places in the brain are very much involved in olfactory processing. And this was sort of first realized and investigated in neurodegenerated patients who had some cognitive dysfunction and had some problems in, in those areas of the brain, and also, coincidentally, were found to have olfactory problems, thus the association was made. And so uh, that, that's basically the rationale that he gives is basically an anatomic one. Other possible causes for acute cognitive changes in, in this race, uh, besides um, you know, the ones that I, th- I think of when I have athletes who have cognitive change, I, I consider sort of bad things first. Alessandro wanted to just point out some of the other things that could cause this, um, which could be a mix of physical effort, hypoxia, sleep deprivation, and in some cases dehydration, which they measured uh, with total body weight. And a combined effect of these uh, could certainly affect cognition, and in particular, um, being able to be attentive, um, executive tasks, visuospatial tasks, and language uh, and all of these are processed by the frontal lobe uh, and, again, is a very important area of the brain for olfactory function. So I thought that was a pretty good explanation for those possible uh, relationship there. And I'm happy that Marty asked that question and that we got the answer uh, from Alessandro. So there you have it. Uh, that's the final article for this month's Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live. I'd like to really uh, just thank all of the presenters, all of the reviewers, Uh, the audience members who submitted questions. Uh, We had five fantastic articles that we were able to discuss and review. Um, We hope that hearing from these authors was helpful. We look forward to this new endeavor at Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. Thank you for listening. Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live is a service of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society, published by Elsevier. All material is copyrighted by the Wilderness Medical Society, all rights reserved. Contact us at wemlive at wms.org if you have any questions about the show or are interested in being invited on our next recorded journal club. Claim your CME credits for listening to this show by going to WMS.org, completing the quiz questions, and attesting to your participation. We hope you've learned something new today and enjoyed doing it.